Hi everyone, welcome to the Bun Me Chronicles podcast. This is Randy Kim, your host and producer of this podcast. In exploring the third season theme, Where Do We Stand? I spoke with Suli Saro, who is currently running for city council in Long Beach, California. If elected, she'll be the first Khmer American woman elected into their city council. This is rather significant since Long Beach has the largest Khmer population in the U.S. and is often referred to as Cambodia Town by many Khmer Americans. Suli has spent years working in nonprofit advocacy and currently as a professor at Cal State University. Her passion for advocacy and organizing work would motivate her to run for public office for the very first time. Suli shares that experience with me and what campaigning is like during the time of COVID-19. She talks about the recent civil unrest and her goals to prioritize the protection of black and brown communities from police brutality and harmful racialized policies. Check out this episode for more about Suli, and don't forget to register to vote and cast your mail-in ballot before November. Special thanks to my sponsor, Lawrence and Argyle, a Vietnam-American-owned merchandise line representing immigrant empowerment. Get yourself a pin, hoodie, or t-shirt and show off your immigrant pride. Visit them at www.lawrenceandargyle.com or on Instagram at lawrenceandargyle, or just visit their Facebook page. Hello, everyone. This is Randy Kim from the Bunny Chronicles podcast. So today I am joined with Suli Sorrow. So to give you a quick introduction of who Suli is, uh, she has worked for Asians American Advancing Justice in LA. Uh, she's currently a professor at Cal State University in LA teaching community organizing. Uh, she has worked for State Senator Ricardo Laura. Uh, and also, you are currently running for Long Beach City Council District 6. So today, uh, I want to welcome you in and thank you so much for joining me. So how are you today? I'm doing well, Randy. Thanks for having me on today on your show. Yeah, and it's, it's, it, is, it is an honor. And also, it's also very exciting that you are going to be running for office uh, for City Council in Long yeah. Beach, California. And, and that would make you the first Khmer American woman. If you were to get elected, that would actually make you the first Khmer American woman to be elected. And yeah, first Cambodian American elected to City Council in Long Beach. That is wonderful. In and, general, yeah. You know, an- Long Beach is currently one of the biggest uh, Khmer American populations in the mm-hmm. U.S. And I wonder what it took so long to have mm-hmm. Khmer American representation in Long Beach on a political mm-hmm. level. And I was wondering what led you to run for office and mm-hmm. why do you think it's that it has taken so long for Khmer Americans to run for office? Mm-hmm. Well, we have had, I do want to make sure people know that we've had um, Cambodian American candidates running for city council. I think that um, there's been various factor in, 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 in the time. I, I, you know, we are the, I want to say the only Asian community that's 
been through genocide. And I think it's take it, you know, when you go through that kind of trauma and having to rebuild, um, it takes time. And I think that building to a level of political power um, is kind of the last tier, right? Sometimes when you go to the Maslow, you know, theory around having to make sure you have food and clothes and all of that. Um, and, and to making sure then your family's taken care of, you're living in a safe environment, um, and then to get a place to where you have a political voice. It's, I think it's been time, timely because it, I, I think that people have a misconception that our older generation is um, hates that abhors politics when really they are so engaged in politics, um, not in the US specifically, um, some are, but a lot in the homeland. And so that makes them also active and uh, engaged here locally. And I think that it's time in our generation, the 1.5, and where we have come to our own and our identity and as well as um, connecting with the older and the younger generation. And I'm running because I, I've had the experience of being a refugee. I understand um, the challenges in dealing with the disparity and this district is reflective of how I grew up. Um, I grew up in um, LA, um, but it's really similar to the district that I'm running in. I've lived in Long Beach for over 10 years now. Um, and it's just time for a change. And I think that I have the leadership ability and the knowledge and, and the passion to serve and to make changes. So that's why I'm running. That's amazing. So yeah. you also recently beat a 12-year incumbent during the mm -hmm. primary election. So I was curious about how were you able to beat a long-term incumbent? Because when you're dealing with someone who's been in office for a number of years, there's, uh, there are unfortunately barriers, especially for newcomers trying to run against someone who's well-financed, who's been uh, well endorsed by other known politicians and also the name recognition obviously mm -hmm. sticks out but what do you think uh was the key to beating a, uh, a long-term incumbent mm -hmm. i mean i'm so proud that we we ran a campaign that's just grounded in the community it was a grassroots campaign and i want to say it was people power that defeated an institution um, you know, my work in the community has uh, built a relationship and I think also tells a story about what we can achieve together, the changes that needs to be done. Um, and I think that people have that same vision and they were really passionate and, and seeing that through by engaging. We, you know, we have these our elders who, Ming, Ming and Bu, who, you know, while they never even this is the first time they volunteer in an election and they were learning the process and it was just so amazing for them to kind of struggle but then once they get it they were off um and, and i think that that is really the power that helped me win this election um is having the grassroots community support and it wasn't just cambodian community it was engaging in not just you know, with a Latino, African-American, or white community. It was everybody reaching to everyone with that message and the need for new leadership. And oftentimes, like living in Chicago, um, voter turnout has always been very low, and especially yeah. in urban areas, and uh, especially among minorities where they feel their vote 
would not count or they feel like it wouldn't make a difference. Mm-hmm. Did you find that being an issue in the Khmer community as well? And also mm-hmm. in with other Latinx, uh, Black, and other uh, ethnic minorities in Long Beach? Mm-hmm. I think that it's a problem everywhere in all communities. Um, and I think that that's why having Uh, people who are part of your campaign that are from the community speaks volume because they themselves believe that their vote matter and they had a candidate they were excited about. And so when they were speaking to their family and their neighbors, that got them excited to vote. And I had I had an elderly, even Vietnamese man who called just my number and was saying, you know, I want to vote, but I don't know how. It was the first time he voted. Um, he registered to vote and voted um, because he wanted to vote for, for me. And it was just wow. so moving. Um, and that just speaks volume when you, um, you know, when you, when you have a campaign that's um, based on people and it's having mm. people doing that outreach. That's beautiful to witness, uh, especially with elders who have long been shut off from the civic engagement process. And because of language barrier issues mm-hmm. and because uh, a lot of the times their communities have been ignored. I, I know like this is not new in our community, in the Khmer yeah. Southeast Asian community, it's been largely ignored, especially in the electoral process and, and also issues that are important to our communities have often been overlooked because mm-hmm. of the auto minority myth. But uh, when you see these moments, it shows us that that when they look at people who look like them running mm-hmm. for office and engaging with their communities, it's a very powerful moment to yeah. And it just goes to show that representation matters. You know, I was door knocking, you know, my Spanish is, I speak conversational Spanish and not fluent, but it goes a long way to greet and attempt to speak in another language. Um, And I feel like, and and, and I spoke Khmer at the door. So I think being a person who is, you know, speaking in multiple languages demonstrate my intent to be as representative as possible around the issue and um, and certainly around you know the the needs of the community as well and also how are you doing currently with the campaign in mm-hmm. the midst of the pandemic obviously the pandemic has uh, completely altered the way a person campaigns and you know doing a lot of personal uh, rallies and door knocking are very limited, right? So yeah. I was very curious to know how have you been able to stay engaged with uh, constituents in that in your district mm-hmm. and how are you able to make sure that they are being heard and that they know who you are and what you represent? Yeah, it certainly is very different. Um, you know, COVID's changed everything the way we do. I mean, even having to teach online, I'm having to shift um, so much of what I'm used to and what I feel like I'm good at too. Um, but it's, it's, you know, I'm still talking and I'm still walking. It's just different. Um, I'm doing it over the phone. I'm doing it virtually um, FaceTiming or I'm also doing it at a distance when I'm in the neighborhood talking to people as well as with um, all of the the, the team that I have who are volunteers, they're doing it and by reaching their network. Um, you know, the one thing I'm doing right, been able to do it, at least is stopping piping people's door is putting lawn signs. So I at least can wave to them 
being visible, but, and then, you know, scheduling virtual meet and greets, <laughs> having virtual group meet and greets with neighborhood leaders um, is helping out. Um, but it certainly is hard to not door knock because that's what we did. Um, and it's what's helped us achieve victory in the primary election. Um, but, you know, when they're, that's still not going to stop me. I'm going to plan on still trying to attempt to talk to every voter. It's just a little bit, um, you just have to be creative. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's, it's very interesting to watch right now of how the presidential conventions yeah. or non-conventions are not happening and and what the debate's going to look like and also what the how is voter engagement going to look like the next few months here? I mean, the, the election's coming really close and also with the mail-in ballots. So that's also yeah. another issue too that is a concern. So I think what you are, what you're showing is like, yeah, there's so much of how do we utilize our technology? How mm -hmm. do we find creative ways to reach out to voters who are left behind or who are feeling uh, very much not engaged in the process right now mm -hmm. because the pandemic has unfortunately uh, created such a harmful effect that people are thinking about how am I going to survive tomorrow? How am I right. going to pay rent? Mm -hmm. And the election is important to them, but also at the same time, their safety comes at a greater cost. So right. um, I, I think just seeing how this has affected uh, a large number of the population is um, certainly very eye-opening and I'm, I'm glad that you can share your experiences about what the campaign process has been looking like so far and we had talked about earlier about the Long Beach community and mm -hmm. uh, Long Beach has been known as Cambodia town but uh, what can you share about the other communities in Long Beach and what is your relationship with uh, Long Beach as far as uh, the Cambodian community is concerned? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, the 6th the District is diverse. I think that um, in the Cambodian community is known as the largest population, but it's also uh, a historical place for the Black community. Um, there are many homes here in this district where it was redlined, um, and they were only allowed to buy homes here. We have, you know, um, large um, you know, historical sites um, where African uh, Black community convene and, you know, Black Panthers convene to organize. So we have that and we have our historic Wrigley District where we have our arts and, you know, unique home that are out there and very talented um, individuals who, um, you know, that that are there so we have our latino community members as well who brings add in you know various diversity of culture and you know activities um and you know so th there's a lot in this district that i think you know and unfortunately is known for being um you know the most it has had a lot of you know history for being a place of a lot of violence um and various activity but that's what I'm passionate about is working to change that and lifting up the positive sides of it, as well as it being a you know having Cambodia town. Um, you know, it, it's all of the disparity here um, impacts everyone, the economic disparity. Um, you know, all of the business corridors. You know, they weren't doing very well before, and they're much harder hit now during the the COVID pandemic, um, as well as 
making sure that streets are clean, right? So there's a lot of just infrastructure issues that we can work on, but I think there are still creative ways you can engage people, even if we can't be in contact. It also has the highest COVID infection rates as well, and which is really devastating because, um, again, it has the second, high, you know, one of the higher poverty rates. So unfortunately, you know, the pandemic has made things a lot worse um, and lifted out the disparity. Um, but, but that's why even more so I'm ready to take leadership and start addressing those, um, all of those issues. And the topic of COVID-19 in the District 6, uh, especially with Long Beach, which has a high number of low to working class uh, communities, or have you been very concerned about the uh, the current administration uh, with Long Beach and the mm -hmm. state of California's response to COVID-19? And what are you and, and other, other new colleagues that you've been working with are looking mm -hmm. to uh, address these current issues and their current responses to the way that they have uh, 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 reacted towards mm -hmm. uh, the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, I think that California is doing pretty well as far as the best that, you know, they, that, that we can do, um, as well as our, um, you know, mayor and as well as elected official here in Long Beach. I think that there's just so many overwhelming challenges to overcome, but I also feel that um, having people who can reach out to the more, um, you know, to the other communities um, in addressing this, the high rates and COVID infection rate is also necessary, which is why it's important to have people in, you know, representative of the, the community. Um, you know, it's taken, it took about maybe four to five months before the city of Long Beach was able to do a town hall in Khmer. Um, but they were able to do various other things in other language, um, certainly Spanish, but also making sure they target the black community. Um, the Pacific Islander community certainly could also use a town hall because they also have a very high infection rate. So I think that there are ways to still, while um, it's hard to address every community, I think that there is a way to do it, working with partners in the community. Um, so. So that's kind of where I think that we could do better um, as far as addressing the public health issue and making sure people have the proper education and, and resources, especially for our small businesses too. Mm. And also when we have COVID-19, there is also the aftermath of the police brutality protests mm. that have been happening since the wake of George Floyd. Now, now the, the police, the relationship with the police among black and brown communities have always been uh, been an ongoing struggle. And this is mm -hmm. obviously an issue that continues to confront uh, what is happening today. And I know during the uh, protests, there were looting in Cambodia town and Unfortunately, you know, looking at my Facebook uh, among the Cambodian American communities, there was a mm -hmm. lot of division between uh, those who were supporting Black Lives and then those who were supporting the police and very upset with the looting, especially of Cambodian American stores uh, and businesses that were there. Uh, I also noticed that you were helping to 
support the local businesses that were affected by the looting, but at the same time, also showing support for Black lives. So I was wondering what the conversation has been like to address anti-Blackness, but also to uh, talk about police brutality and the and also at the same time understanding the impact of the protests and and working with business owners who were affected by the mm -hmm. protest you know for the most part i felt that um it it was it's been a process to make sure that people understood the protesters um are different from the looters i think that for the most part a good amount of the community members i've talked to um, understood the difference. And I think that there's going to always be, I think, um, you know, regardless of any community, differences in how people feel around the police. Um, you, and I think that there are also many people who are very supportive about Black Lives Matter um, and ensuring that we are supporting racial equity and justice as well. Um, and, and I think that for some of the shop owners I talked to understood to some sense what had happened with the protests and, and, and that this looting was a different group of people, right? Um, and I think that it's just been, again, this is a district that has been neglected. So it's been building on issues that um, had happened prior to COVID, even prior to the uprising, right? This has been an ongoing issue around um, receiving proper resources when needed. And I feel that that was what people was upset about is um, getting um, the, the, the proper resource equitably for the district to every other district. Because it wasn't only Cambodia Town that was being looted, it was all parts of different um, um, you know, parts of the city. And I think that people were more questioning, well, why did some area get a police response and some didn't? And then that is still being discussed. I don't, I don't know. Um, and I think that uh, that's where I'm interested in learning more about the way that, um, you know, certain resources were deployed. Um, and, and I think that, you know, there's also room for discussion about what what resources of our budget should go into policing versus investment in the community as well. And that is something is in the works right now and having that kind of discussion um, as far as me even talking with the community about um, what budgeting even means and how much money goes to the police versus money going into support for developing small businesses in addition to youth development um, opportunity and workforce development. That is currently what I'm talking to people about right now is making sure and what I've been talking about even prior to the uprising and you know the movement uh, for racial um, equity and justice is ensuring that proper resources are allocated um, within the districts as well as to certain areas of what the community needs. And I think it also brings up a very important topic that you um, that you just segued into, which is mm -hmm. the movement to defund police, uh, to talk about police abolition, prison abolition, mm -hmm. to redirect, redistribute the resources from uh, the police budget to schools, to social work, to mental health, to um, to different social services. Um, what has the community uh, 
response been? And also, what are you looking to, and I know you just alluded to it just a moment ago, but in terms of working with the community, but also knowing that you do have to work with the police department, uh, mm -hmm. that you have to engage in, especially in the police force where you have to deal with the unions and you also have to deal with the strong opposition that comes from them, uh, especially when they feel that their jobs are being at risk and that they, in their minds, feel that they are being attacked. Mm -hmm. um, I'm very curious to know what your take is, especially uh, as as a legislator and what that would look like, especially when you're trying to balance uh, between the community's needs and prioritizing the community's need uh, to be quite frank with you, but also to, uh, yes. to work with the police that you have to uh, talk to. Mm -hmm. Well, I certainly understand the movement. You know, I understand the position that people are taking around defunding the police, but I also, I uh, think that many members of the community in the district don't understand what that means. And I think that that's where organizing needs to take place is to having discussion about um, our, pro our resources being properly distributed in the community to serve the community. And I think that, that the discussion now is, you know, what, what role do policing have in the community? Um, and I think that it comes up with a lot of the history of why police were formed to begin with. Um, it's a history that needs to be reconciled so that um, people can feel that there is a place that we can all have a good discussion about um, how to work together, right? Because policing doesn't happen in a vacuum and where it's just the law of law enforcement. It also includes well, where are they doing it in? It's in the community. And so that's where I think it's important right now is um, having a discussion on what all the basics mean, what do budgets mean, how do money get allocated into the communities, and what are the highest needs at the moment. Um, there are people in the community who feel they need the police because of the high violence and crime rates happening at the moment. There are others, um, as you shared, that are part of the movement to defund it, the police. And I think that, that um, there needs to be a place for a conversation about uh, where people are at about it. Um, and, and I think that it's important now, it's an opportunity to um, revision what, um, given even with COVID and in the midst of this is revision what resources really, what that we need to have a healthy community. Um, and I think that in the end of the day, it's always gonna be working in partnership and communicating with each other. Um, that's just the basic for me that I believe that we need to have even right now. Where do you think, uh, the members of city council and the mayor of Long Beach stand on the issue of police defunding at this time? Well, I certainly know that although the council member and the police are hearing um, the demands, and I think that there, and that's the reason why there's a reconciliation framework that was approved uh, and passed, and so that there can be listening sessions around people's stories and experience. Um, a budget did just pass by the, um, th that the city ma manager just recommended for the city council members to approve. So there's discussions having right now and what is in the end of the day, it looks like to defund the police in the city budget. And um, that's discussion taking place at the moment. Um, I don't know everybody's position, but I do know there is conversation being had. Um, with everybody about that at the moment. 
So I was also thinking about how, uh, for a moment there, I just kind of lost my thought, but um, with the police abolition and defunding the police, there's also been issues about ICE and ICE working with the police and in the Cambodian and Latinx communities, ICE have been targeting those communities mm -hmm. at a high yeah. rate, especially in Long Beach. Uh, I was wondering about what your take is and what city council's take is on dealing with ICE and also uh, working with the uh, communities to stop the deportations, to stop the ICE raids that mm -hmm. have been escalating for the past several years, especially under uh, President Trump. So I'm curious, or I, I would like to get your take on what are you looking to do to help uh, help in stopping the deportations that have been going on in the uh, Southeast Asian communities and Latinx communities? Yeah, I mean, I've always been um, part of the fight against deportation in the Cambodian community when it happened when I was the executive director of My Girls in Action and have always been very supportive of it, even when I was working for the senator's office to support um, you know, members of our community that was going through a removal process so they could get a pardon from the governor. Uh, so I'm very much on a place where I don't think ICE the, the local police department should be cooperating with ICE. Um, and, and, and I think that um, for me, I think that it's really important we work on this issue on a local state and national level, meaning that the local city, state, and federal offices should be coordinating to make sure we're in communicating about how do we uh, ensure that we stop this and decrease this from happening? And also thinking about ways to support families and members themselves that are going through this process. There was a justice fund approved so that um, certain funds would be available to provide for legal assistance um, in a person's case while they're going through removal. Uh, and I think that that's something on the plan on continue working on when I get on council, I'm helping to see how I can be supportive in that area. So very much so on even right now, I'm helping uh, uh, to stop it and work to do, and we'll plan on doing so on city council. Mm. Thank you for sharing that because I know that when we think about our community and also seeing what Latinx, South Asians and other uh, communities are going through uh, in regards to the deportations, it is very heartbreaking to see the family mm -hmm. separations. Absolutely. Uh, and, and for our community, it's very traumatic uh, for our community members, especially those who had fled from Cambodia. And the majority of the ones that are getting deported were born in refugee camps mm -hmm. or um, born in Cambodia, like maybe they were about a year or two old when they had left. And mm -hmm. so they're going back to a country that they have no uh, relationship to. And it's... It's devastating. It, yeah. I mean, it's breaking families apart. It's having the mother re be re-traumatized again and having you know to lose their children um, in that way. And I think that this is, it has to stop. It's been going on for decades now. Um, and it needs to stop. It needs to end. And that's something that I want to contribute to, 
to, to ending. I mean, it's obviously now expanded to other communities and where um, the, the Vietnamese community, Hmong community, and where they're doing removals now. And so it's, it's, it's you know, pervasive in, in all immigrant community given the, you know, federal administration's um, goals, right? And, and so I'm going to do everything I can to be part of stopping and ending it. And also, oftentimes when a person who is of color or a woman or queer or trans, there's a stigma that they are seen as people representing their own communities, their own identities, but not representing all of the communities. Mm-hmm. How do you challenge that myth? Because I do hear this pop up quite a few times. Uh, like if you're a person of color, like you're Latinx or you're an mm-hmm. Asian person that you represent only this part of the group ahead of everyone else. How do you challenge that? I think that there's such a stigma surrounding uh, BIPOC folks who are running for office, mm-hmm. especially in districts that are very diverse. Yeah, it's, it, you know, it's just, uh, it's an identity question, right? Because um, you get this in, in various field where you work and even where, you know, everywhere, pretty much. And I think it's just an education process to, because um, people don't know, because they don't know, they haven't been exposed to certain communities. So it's an educational process. And I think that some people feel, well, it shouldn't be my job. But I think that it, in some way, it is all our jobs to help support and educate each other about not just your own community, but where what you believe in. And just as I defend Black Lives Matter, other communities as well, right? It's, it's defending my values as well um, and or explaining it. And I think that that's the beauty is um, once I start having conversation with people and exposing them to the diversity within communities, because it's similar to other community, um, and it, it helps to kind of even be a connecting point when, when we have those conversations. Um, I know that some people may tire of having to con- constantly have that conversation, but that is that is um, part of um, you know society, it, and especially if you live in diverse societies, right? Is having conversation about culture and food, um, identity, and beliefs. Yeah, and I think what's so beautiful about Long Beach because I've been there twice. I was there most recently in March because my friend Honey Hawk, who I think yeah. you met before, she's. A huge fan of, yeah, she's, she's wonderful. I mean, she also is the founder of QMI, which is a queer trans. Yeah, she was telling me about how supportive you were uh, to their group. And QMI is a queer trans Khmer American group uh, that was just established about a year ago. And, you know, she took me around Long Beach and gave me a good, nice one-on-one about Mm, the community itself. And it's, it's, for a guy who has lived more like in the diaspora, I mean, I live in the Chicago land area, but I grew up in a mostly predominantly white community. Mm-hmm. Um, the Vietnamese side of me, I don't think I have an issue of seeing visibility there because we have the Asian Argyle community, mm-hmm. uh, whereas there's Vietnamese restaurants, stores popping up. But in the Cambodian side, we used to have some of those businesses there, but they've disappeared. And mm-hmm. there are hardly any Khmer American-owned businesses that are visibly Khmer. Yeah. And when you go to Long Beach, it feels like a different dynamic. And it feels very special. It feels like this is what it means to be uh, Khmer. And mm-hmm. I think there's such a beauty that every time everyone talks about Long Beach, 
that is the first thing that comes to mind is the Khmer American community. Um, what can you say about the past 10 years of living in Long Beach? What has that done for you, especially as a Khmer American who's, who your family has mm -hmm. had to escape the genocide? And also, I wanted to ask you, were you born uh, before the genocide or were you born uh, the, after the uh, time of the Khmer Rouge? Um, yeah, so I was born in the refugee camps, like many other 1.5 generations um, that are here and came here when I was little too to the US. And, um, you know, my family uh, resettled in Los Angeles, but we were always connected to Long Beach because I had relatives living there. Um, we didn't move there because my dad worked a lot and my other family worked at the garment um, you, you live where you found work. So we found work at the garment factories in downtown LA. So I grew up in Echo Park area in the 80s, which if people know about it at that time had high rates of gang activity. Um, so, you know, for me, it was always, it always was, you know, I, I knew that I eventually would resettled in um, Long Beach as an adult because that was to me home. And I knew that as part of my work and being an organizer and wanting to help the community grow and um, fight for representation, as well as ensuring that we were getting the resources and, you know, that we needed to heal and to, to um, rebuild. And we're, you know, right now, Cambodia town is part of the business quarter that needs a lot of work. And I want to be part of that. And that's why I'm here. I think that um, we are the next generation of leaders that shouldn't wait for permission to take leadership. Mm -hmm. uh, we just need to uh, work together like we are right now, having conversations and reaching across, you know, state and international lines to share and build together. Because if we don't do that, we, we're not leaving much for the next generation, which is like my children. Um, and I want to make sure that they know where they came from and that they have a role in fighting to maintain it and to build it as well. So that's what it means for me in Long Beach is that we can't take for granted that anything is going to be preserved or anything is going to be built or strengthened on its own, that we are actually the leaders that needs to do it, whether or not anybody's telling you that you should or not. Hopefully you're being inspired to. Yeah, it is, it's, it's very inspiring to see a lot of our Khmer American and other Asian American mm -hmm. folks across the board running for office, um, going into fields that their parents did not encourage them to do outside of the lawyer, yeah. medical field. Just that like what Honey is doing with Khmer. It's just, you know, an idea and she's, you know, built it in a way and where it's, you know, growing to build that, um, you know, um, to, to, to get to create awareness and acceptance, right, of all of our community members, regardless of who they love. And, and I'm so supportive of that. Yeah. Um, so that's just, I want to lift up that, that example that she, she didn't wait for any permission. She knew that this was a need because once she shared her stories, other people reaching out to her that that's mine too. And mm -hmm. that there is a need for support and connection. And that's where it starts. Absolutely. And this is what's so amazing about her too. I know this is like now turning into a love affair for Honey right now, but, but I think, but that's all right. We all love Honey. Oh, we do too. And you know, when I first connected with her, I saw her wedding video, which is to her partner. And I've never seen 
a same-sex Khmer American wedding video, mm-hmm. and that was oh, it gives me goosebumps. It, it it really hits my soul a lot because we need to see that. So yeah. we need to see what that feels like for us, and and to see what she's doing is just empowering, and and what you're doing is also very empowering too. And I I wonder about how your family reacted when you first wanted to get into community organizing <laughs> because I think anytime any of us gets into the political spectrum of things, especially in America, it does trigger our family members because our families have escaped from genocide. They've yeah. escaped political crime, what, what's considered political crimes, mm-hmm. and seeing their community neighbors disappear because of politics. And my mom's side of the family is Vietnamese, so mm-hmm. there was a lot of distrust within our own community as well. And I wonder how that must be like to tell your own family that <laughs> I want to go into community organizing. I want to get into politics. And the first thing is, I don't want to lose you. I don't want anything to yeah. happen to you. It's such a real, what you said is so real. It was what I went through, um, you know, their hopes. I, I, you know, I'm the only one in my family to go to college and, um, you know, they had really high hopes and dream that I would become like an accountant or do some kind of safe profession. Um, and when I got into labor organizing, they're like, what the heck are you doing? This is dangerous. Well, it's just, um, you know, to have left war and violence and it, the never natural inclination is to do for your children to be safe, right? Because that's what they had to do to get here. Um, but I think that they've known my character and my demeanor is that I'm very much a fighter. I've always been when I was little. And when I set my mind to do something, it's really hard to convince me otherwise. So um, so I always have my mom explaining to my dad so that he can kind of like let it go. And um, my mom's always a little bit more quick to understand and let me explore the that the, the work that I do do. Um, but after a while, they've just gotten, once I, you know, I've been through a labor, been a labor organizer and then was an ED for an organization. They were like, oh my God, my daughter has to something for money, which is to beg for money for an organization. I was like, don't put it like that. It's fundraising. Uh, <laughs> and, and then working for a state senator. So, um, so I think that at certain points, they've gotten used to me just doing things that were not... Um, considered, I guess, safe profession. And when I just said I was going to run for office, they're like, oh, okay. They, there was no, they weren't even flinching at all. They're like, oh, okay. <laughs> so I, I think it- I kind of built them. I think I kind of warmed them up to this point um, in running for office. <laughs> have they been your biggest supporters as well too? Or have they been yeah. campaigning with you as well? They, they were, they have been in, even with their fundraising, I mean, you know, my, my father is just the best. When I told him I was running, he's like, okay, I'm going to help you fundraise. So he would go and visit his friend and they would give $10, you know, $20, like from everybody he knew, which is why I had so many donors. A lot of my, the people who fund my campaign are from people. Um, and, and so, and they, you know, very, very much so. Get, you know, telling people and, um, you know, about me running and everything. So I think they're proud. I think I can, I think I can say at this point that they're really proud of me and what I've been able to, um, what I'm doing and, and that I'm running for office. Yeah. So November is coming up very soon. And what would it mean for you if you were to get elected? 
Wow. Well, I mean, it would be such an honor for me to be a representative, not just for certainly for the whole resident of the sixth district and to be able to serve and to have the opportunity to address a lot of the issues um, and work towards a vision together collectively. I'm just most excited about, about that. The community has been, I think, neglected for far too long and not have, not feeling like they're heard. And so I'm really most excited about that and hoping that people will support me in any way they can, even if I know that a lot of people have family in Long Beach and friends. Um, so if you can continue to make sure to spread the word um, and even donate if you can, it doesn't have to be a lot, like I even shared earlier, 10, 20, whatever people can do goes a long way. Um, but more importantly, just making sure that people if they do live in the sixth district vote. Yeah, no, I think, um, yeah, I think when we are looking at the election and how close it is and also how terrifying it is because, you know, there's fear, is Trump going to get reelected? Mm -hmm. What is the U.S. Senate going to look like? Uh, or is the Democrat going to have control? If the Democrats are in power, are they going to are they going to keep the status quo of the deportations or will there be much fundamental changes in the mm -hmm. wake of Trump? So I think there is a lot of fear of what the next administration or the next four years are going to look like. And anxiety, like. I think, fear and anxiety about what the future in general is gonna hold, right? Um, but I think that that's where we cannot, just like what's happening with COVID, we cannot let fear paralyze us and lead us to inaction and being passive. Um, we need to more than ever have conversations. So I really encourage people because you cannot easily run into people is to pick up the phone, call people, see how they're doing, where are they at, um, to be engaged um, and to reach out. Um, this is a time to talk and to, to check in with people. Um, we cannot let fear and anxiety and take over us to not do anything. And what other initiatives are you looking to introduce aside from the COVID-19 pandemic and the police brutality if you were to get elected? What other pressing issues are you looking to address uh, head on? Well, I mean, it's always been my platform is around the economic development opportunities in our district is I think that while our economy is impacted by COVID, there's also opportunity to figure out how do we envision and reimagine what kind of economy we want to build and prepare for as we're going to be hit, right? And how do we also um, protect our community from it as much as possible to building in um, you know, knowing that it's coming ahead, how do we make sure that we're going to be prepared to protect our community, um, whether it's through finding innovative ways of employment or as well as mutual aid, ways that we can support each other, knowing that um, our government is also hard hit by, you know, the pandemic. So that's really one and really thinking about how can we use this as an opportunity to educate and train people for what they would like to do in their professional workforce, right? And, and, and building towards a future we want, knowing that things are uncertain right now. Um, 
and we can't be afraid to have vision more than ever we need to when we are feeling um, uncertain and in fear, right, about the future is, well, that's when we need to con take control over it. Mm -hmm. The other is ensuring that we continue to have safe communities and that's continuing the conversation with how do we build a safe community in partnership with everybody, right, including the police, um, including and with residents and with business owners and everybody. Um, because we have high, you know, we have a, we've been having a lot of shootings. A lot of people have been shot and killed um, in the sixth district and their needs and people are fearful of, of their lives. They don't know if they can, they'll get shot walking down the street. Uh, the other is making sure that we have uh, green, you know, open space so that people can recreate safely. And many people are stuck in their homes. Um, we have a district that are very dense in certain parts and not a lot of access to open spaces. How do we make sure we keep pe people healthy um, be, to be able to um, utilize the open space and making sure they're green space, right? Creating more community gardens with the lots that exist. Um, so those, those are some things that I really like to start working on with our community. I think we, uh, when the word economic development happens, there's also fear of gentrification. Mm -hmm. and, and I know uh, for folks that have uh, shared in the past who have lived in Long Beach that it's getting more expensive, that there's more gentrification mm -hmm. starting to emerge. Uh, how do you address the issue of gentrification then, especially for uh, a large part of the community that is lower to working class, uh, lower to middle class uh, communities? Mm -hmm. I think that you also raised up the other issue that I wanted to share was around housing affordability, right? Um, it's certainly still very expensive in the, even in the time of COVID um, for, for renting and, and living in, in homes. And I think that what's important when you revitalize um, a business quarter and then you revitalize neighborhood is that along the way you build in protective factors to ensure that you know, we're making sure people don't get pushed out or businesses don't get pushed out. And that has to happen, I think, through whether it's legislative process, building in a policy, um, and it's making sure that we also empower community economically to be able to control more of the area of where they live. Um, so those are just some ideas about making sure that it's a constant monitoring and conversation to make sure that people who live here and do business here are part of that conversation. And also, before we wrap things up, uh, what can you say to Kamai Americans and to any API folks who are interested in running for office? What advice would you have for them? I would say really explore it. I, I really just wouldn't discourage anyone who is thinking about it and to make sure that you're clear on your purpose about why you want to run for office and to reach out and talk to people who are in public office. It doesn't have to be another Cambodian or Asian person. It's just somebody in office and start um, participating in your local government, even going to the city council meeting or school board meeting or for whatever position you're running for and to see what that's like. And then also to, uh, if you can possibly intern uh, or volunteer um, various activity that these different offices do so that you can get a little more exposure to what it's like being um, an elected official or being in a public setting. Um, so I really encourage it. I think that we don't have enough. Um, I would be, if elected, not just the first Cambodian American, but the third Asian American 
uh, elected to city council to the city of Long Beach. And that's pretty amazing given that um, there's a sizable Asian Pacific Islander community here in the city. So I just, and then also while I was working for the Senator office, it's just really hard to engage young people to intern that are Asian American, even um, to intern in the office. It's not a sector that many gravitate towards <laughs> for some reason, right? Um, but I hope that me running adds to the Pikes people's interest in wanting to look into it further. Um, and, and that it doesn't have to be what you see in the media. It's really taking control again of how you want to share your narrative of how you are running for office and why and who can be part of that campaign or your campaign. That's wonderful. And I'm excited to see what's going to happen come November and also seeing what that is going to look like for you uh, if you were to get elected, because I think this is a very powerful moment for our community mm -hmm. and, and also and the ongoing progress that Asian Americans are trying to uh, uh, push for to have not only just visibility, but to recognize that they are more than just citizens that they have the ability to enact change that they mm -hmm. have Absolutely. voices uh, voices in this large collective of Americans who are growing diverse by the day and literally changing so I think this is a very important time right now to see this young group of Asian Americans emerge and start to build their coalition to start to uh, to uh, mobilize so many of our own folks because the Asian American community is the fastest uh, growing mm -hmm. uh, ethnic community in the U.S. and mm -hmm. I think that it is very important to point that out that you know for as long as I've been around for as long as you and I have been around when we look at the questionnaires it'll say black, white, Latino but other and and other is something that describes a lot of our Asian American experiences. We feel othered, right? So I think this is a very important time to really show that the uh, Asian American community does have a lot of power in this. They they are stakeholders mm -hmm. and can do good a lot given the uh, chance, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely, and I think that. Um, more than ever, hopefully, um, you know, we, we continue to keep that going. And I appreciate you doing a podcast to create awareness of just the diversity of our community and the profession and the sector and the passion that we're, we're all in and that we're pursuing. So yeah. um, keep it up. I, yeah. I, I think that you're doing great with these podcasts. Oh, thank you so much. And also, where can people find you and where can people follow your work with the campaign? Well, certainly I, I'm on Facebook and Instagram. So I also have a website. You just have to type up my name, sulisaro.com, to access all of that, um, to learn more about me. Uh, Facebook is sulisaro.lb is my handle. So that's, that's the best way now. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate this conversation. And also best of luck to you uh, and the rest of your campaign. And and also in being able to bring these important conversations to the surface here. I think this is very important for all of our communities to know, even though they're, uh, even though you don't represent 
everyone in America, but I think it's very important to get an idea of what uh, your community is like and also mm -hmm. what can you do to inspire other folks who are thinking about running for office or just even thinking about being civically engaged mm -hmm. because I do think that uh, oftentimes our own community members feel like well voting doesn't matter to me I'm not uh, going to make a difference they don't mm -hmm. care about people like us but but seeing people like you and so many other folks of color running for office is uh, encouraging and it's also a start of something that's going to bring meaningful change hopefully and you know and having not just a person of color but also people who have progressive ideas of stronger vision for those communities mm -hmm. rather Absolutely. than just playing status quo so I also want to you know point that out but but thank you so much thank for you, Randy. sharing this wonderful conversation and best of luck to you in November thank you so much I appreciate it well, that is all for today. Thank you for listening. And be on the lookout for future episodes. So follow me on The Bunmy Chronicles on Facebook. Or you can follow me on Instagram at bunmy underscore chronicles. Thank you again and looking forward to sharing more with you.